Hey everyone and welcome to The Year Was, the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party, causing all your friends to question. Hey, who invited you? Like seriously, why are you here? I am your host, Michael Montalvo, and if you recognize that voice, then you know Tim Kreitz is back with us today. And so without further ado, the year was 1874. And on this day, March 24th, Harry Houdini was born. Tim Kreitz, are you a fan of magic? I am not. (laughs) (laughs) But what we're going to be talking about today goes far beyond that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot more of, you know, just the escapism and and everything there to it and and the illusions and everything. I know he did the, the, we're talking about Houdini. And he did the metamorphosis trick where I think they said it took like three seconds for him and Bess, his wife, to switch places mm-hmm. and do all of that, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, just kind of being able to, to do it that quickly and everything. Yeah, that magic trick became well stolen from him in oh, the yeah. years subsequent to his death. Doug Henning did a really good version of it with some female. Mm-hmm. And they got it down from just a few seconds to a split second. Oh, but that, It was yeah. extremely fast. If you ever get a chance to look at that, it's it's really, really neat to see how fast they can do that I illusion. think I may have seen a video about that. They did uh, a celebration for, it may have been Houdini's 100th birthday or something. That they were in the um, in Wisconsin where where he claimed he was born and everything, mm-hmm. and uh, he was up there doing the trick for everyone in the audience. They yeah. played like the Superman theme or something in the background. So. Oh, okay, yeah. But one of the things that I found out about all of this was that people are really kind of claiming Houdini to be one of the first celebrities of America, mm-hmm. or the first celebrity of America. And people also go as far as to say that he was the greatest showman and. That's something I always kind of heard reserved for P.T. Barnum. I never really considered Houdini in that same way. Right. Houdini, in my opinion, was an average magician. Mm-hmm. He was not necessarily the best magician ever, although he did have some good illusions, and he was really good at protecting his inventions illusion-wise. Yep. I mean, he'd, he'd sue the crap out of you. He had no problem doing that. There, there was a story I he heard. sued Harry Blackstone yeah. Sr., I mean, and a bunch of other people, and, and it's widely speculated that Houdini actually stole some stuff from Harry Blackstone. So We, we may be talking about the same person then, because I know that there's a story about Houdini would doing the uh, open water tricks where he would go into a, a, a trunk and they would dro- drop him into the river and then he'd have to escape from it. And another magician that I can't remember the name now that I'm talking about, it may have been him. He was saying, um, you know, I did that trick years before Houdini did it. And Houdini said, well, you know, prove it. And the guy said, well, here's all the paper clippings saying that I did it. And he's like, well, if you if it's, yeah. if it's all there, where's the box? And they went to his warehouse and the box was missing. Yeah. And then they found it later at Houdini's house. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> with a little uh with a little brass ownership plaque in, yep. underneath the uh, trap door in mm-hmm. it that yep. said it was the property of Harry Blackstone or whatever Harry Blackstone's real name was yeah. I can't remember what it was but yeah so he was one of those guys but but he where where he was an average magician and an average illusionist he was an incredible athlete and an incredible showman mm-hmm. 
and that and an incredible escape artist. Yeah. He but he was a legit escape artist. He would challenge when he went to a town to do a show, he would challenge the local constabulary there, you know, bring the police, bring all your shackles, bring your chains, everything you use to to put somebody in a paddy wagon or everything you use when you have to restrain someone and restrain me with it and I'll get out of it. And he would get out of it every time. Mm -hmm. His understanding of types of restraints and lock picking and types of locks was unparalleled in his time. He was, he was really a genius in his own way at retaining that information and mechanically knowing how to manipulate those, those, uh, I guess what, whatever you would call them. I don't know. I'm at a loss for words here. The mechanics of it. Yeah. Going back to just kind of his beginning and everything, his his real name was Eric uh, Weiss mm-hmm. or Weiss. I don't know. It would if, be Weiss, but he was Hungarian. Yeah, yeah. He he was not German. He was Hungarian. It, it's a weird spelling, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, he was the son of a of a very poor rabbi, yep. and he was a true example of the American success story. I, and that's something that I was going to bring up, actually, because he was dirt poor. He, it's it's you know whenever you hear rags to riches and, and and all of that, it's this is pretty much what his life was. It was mm-hmm. from coming from nothing, and then going up to making five thousand dollars a week. Yeah, you know, which so. which in the teens was a huge huge money. Yeah, yeah I, that is one thing about Harry Houdini. While I'm not a fan of magic, I am a fan of people. I, I'm obsessed with great men, and, and I'm often preoccupied in thought by what makes a man average what to, what makes the regular average guy attain greatness how do how do we get there because I'll be honest with you in a lot of ways I've been trying to attain greatness in my own life for 51 years yeah and I, I don't feel like I've gotten there I've had some some good successes at everything I've tried but I've never been wildly successful and Along those lines, I've been obsessed with guys like Houdini. He came from absolutely nothing, from being hungry. Mm-hmm. And and he he turned into one of the most well-known human beings, not only in America, but on planet Earth. And not only did he learn illusion, and not only did he learn escapism and all of this stuff, but he was an incredible athlete, and he ended up becoming a a good aviator for his time and set some arguable records in aviation. Once he got rolling, there was nothing stopping him, Mm -hmm. you know, except for the weirdness of his death, which I guess we'll get to later. I was actually reading about some of the aviation stuff as well. And it was saying that he was the first person to fly a plane in Australia. That is disputed, Mm -hmm. but he is the first person to fly an airplane in Australia and be noticed for it. And be noticed for it, yeah. (laughs) And that goes back to what a great showman he Mm -hmm. was. Yeah, it's argued that another guy years before had had flown in Australia first, and he's actually commemorated on some Australian, like, I don't know, stamps or something like that, that sort of thing. But in general... Houdini got the credit for it. He got the credit for several things that he probably should not have, but he was such a great showman and he knew how to captivate people's imagination so well that he ended up being the de facto pioneer in whatever those areas were. You kind of mentioned about Houdini being just this kind of, or this great man, this larger than life kind of person. And are you, are you familiar with James Randi at all? Yes. Yeah. So, 
James Randi was talking in an interview, and he said that people would come up to him and ask him if Houdini was real, or if it was uh, he was just a character like Sherlock Holmes, just something that somebody made up and uh-huh. was just uh, a figment of the imagination. And and that's in in he responded to that by saying that that's just fame beyond fame that people don't believe that you're real. Right. Yeah. He was the one of the first. I guess you called it celebrity, but. I would say that he was definitely the first American superstar or one of them. Oh yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a dude that was like five foot four inches tall. Yeah. He was a little bitty dude, mm-hmm. but he was an incredible athlete and, and into his fifties, he was doing crazy stuff athletically oh, yeah. and just no problem. You know, I think they're saying he ran like from five to 10 miles a day and would swim just miles and just, he, he was trying to, he kept that physical peakness throughout his entire life yeah. is everything that I've kind of seen for it. So. Right. And he became known for it, and it's mm-hmm. one of the things that led to his downfall. Yeah. So At age nine, he became a trapeze artist, and at 12, he went to New York to look for work with his father, and that's when he ran into Coney Island uh, sideshows, and that's what inspired all of his love for magic and the the showmanship, I think, is really where, where all that came from. So yeah. he learned to relax his throat to hide keys and needles. Yeah, there were there were all kinds of sideshow performers mm-hmm. swallowing stuff that people thought was impressive until Houdini swallowed an entire rope full of needles. Yeah. Not one needle. It was a hundred needles or something. He was doing these crazy, crazy feats. I remember reading that people would go in and he would just take needles, start swallowing one after the other, and then he'd pull them all out, strung to a thread. Yeah. And I know magicians still do that today, and that's and that's, that's an impressive trick and everything. But I think that'd be it's just kind of cool and crazy to see for all of that. And it, regardless of whatever the technique is on mm-hmm. that, which I don't know, yeah, it's still dangerous. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> he studied Robert Houdin, mm-hmm. and he took the name Houdini from him. Yeah, you added an I to, yeah. to the end. I know that Houdin was absolutely his inspiration in so many things. Yeah. At uh, age 21, he met Bess, which he would later marry uh, a short three weeks after they met. Mm-hmm. And they would stay married until, until he his died. Death. Yeah. yeah, they were made for each other. Now, I did hear that he had an affair with Jack London's widow. Okay. I don't know if you knew about this at all, if you know anything about I, that. I don't necessarily doubt that because back then, mm-hmm. especially, it was pretty much acceptable for a man to step out once in a while, so to speak. It wasn't acceptable, but it was accepted. And most wives knew that just the culture of the times that, you know, you better watch your man. So yeah, I don't doubt that for one second. It was, it was very much a peer pressure and man thing back then. If some woman wanted to be with you, regardless of whether you're married or not, if you turned her away and your buddies found out about it, they would mercilessly, make fun of you so yeah the social pressure for men to to cheat on their wives was different than it is now it seemed like it was a a very brief thing from what i heard but i was only able to find it from one place so i'm not sure just how legitimate the entire thing is either way their marriage survived oh yeah their marriage survived and lasted until his death in 1926 which we'll go over here in a minute he had the the handcuffs that he would always you know, get out of there were handcuffs that were designed over the course of five years and they they put him in there and, and I think he got out of them in about an hour 
That's amazing. Yeah, it's from the the thing that I saw, they were saying that he had his coat on and I guess he never really did any of these escapes in front of people. He would have an audience and everything, but it's always behind a curtain or in a right. little room off to the side and everything. Yeah, when it when it comes to any kind of illusion and some escape stuff, it makes sense that you you can't just let anybody stand or see yeah. anywhere. It would ruin it, right? One of the things that he did though while escaping those handcuffs was to ask for his coat to be removed, but they refused him because they didn't want him to see how the mechanisms of the handcuffs were actually working. So he uh, okay. managed to get a penknife out of his pocket, and he cut off the sleeves of his jacket and just completely destroyed it in order to get the jacket off. <laughs> That's pretty cool. He went to London, but was very disappointed that no one had ever heard of him mm-hmm. and that no one had heard of his escapes or any of the type of stuff that he was doing. And that's when he went to Scotland Yard and was like, well, give me whatever you can and I'll break out of that. And I think that's when he started doing all of those, going to law enforcement and and trying to escape all of that for him. And that Scotland Yard stunt made him instantly pretty famous in England. Mm -hmm. And then that led to a lot of jobs and a lot of shows in England. And he basically came back from England famous and his fame preceded him and it opened up a lot of doors for him in the USA. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I've often thought about that. Houdini and Hendrix kind of did the same thing. Jimi Hendrix did the same thing. He struggled and struggled and struggled in America to make a name for himself as a guitarist. He went to England and everybody loved him in England. And then his fame preceded him coming back to America and opened all these doors for him in similar ways that it did Harry Houdini. I've always drawn a weird comparison, a weird sort of alignment. You know, I, of the I, stars between them. I never really thought of comparing the two like that. I don't know a lot about Hendrix. Well, you know, they became both uh, icons of certain genres. I mean, mm. that's a weird comparison to draw Houdini and Hendrix. But, you know, when you are so good at what you do that someone neologizes your name as an action, you know, yeah. hey, he pulled a Houdini. Oh, oh you're going to yeah, pull yeah. a Houdini on me? You know, when your name becomes that kind of lexicon, you have done well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no question about that. <laughs> that's that's going to be my name someday, but it'll probably end up being something negative, like, oh, this guy over here pulled the Michael. So. Yeah. <laughs> By his early 30s, he had found wealth success, and he added water into his axe. Yes. Which a lot of places, or a lot of the things that I was seeing, he had an accident when he was either five or seven that he nearly drowned. And a lot of people think that that's why he put water into his, into his axe because he was trying to escape that, mm. that drowning. He's trying to get over a childhood trauma. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, the, his Chinese water torture bit, mm-hmm. that, that act was one of his biggest and yeah. it was later on in his life. So, but I never knew the, uh, this, that story, yeah. you know, that he had almost drowned as a child and had a, had a fear of water. Most people would just stay away from the water their whole lives. And maybe mm. that's indicative of who Harry Houdini was, because we all have dreams and very few of us ever truly achieve our dreams. And he figured out a way to do it. And maybe just the raw bravery that he displayed and that he exemplified mm. in his life, it allowed him to overcome a lot of obstacles that other people simply would not be able to overcome. Oh, yeah. So I, I don't know that I would get anywhere near water if that had happened to me. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. In addition to Houdini allegedly stealing his competitors' boxes and everything, 
he would often challenge them to do stunts and to outdo him. He always had to be that one better yeah, than he, everybody he, else. He wanted to scoreboard everybody. Yeah. He did that with the spiritualists big time. Like one of his big, like after his mm-hmm. mother died, he had a really hard time with the death of his mother and he tried to reach out to her through yes. spiritualists. And that's what I wanted to talk about too, because Arthur Conan Doyle introduced him to all of that. Yeah. And he was there with all the spiritualists and everything I was kind of seeing was that he knew it was fake, but he was so desperate to reach out to her that he went and talked to all these spiritualists and that's whenever he was yeah. going in and, and he figured out they were all a bunch of frauds. Yep, and so right, he, yeah. he spent a good por- portion of his remaining career debunking them mm-hmm. and one upping them and proving them wrong and proving them as frauds. And actually that ruined his friendship with Arthur Conan yeah. Doyle. I don't know if I'm revealing any secrets or anything, but under the table, he'd be able to slip off his shoe and ring a bell in order to have a noise coming from whatever room or, or whatever. Uh-huh. It's just all crazy stuff. <laughs> And after his death, I'm sure everyone knows this because it has to be just, well, it's like the Beatles. You're just born with that knowledge. But after his death, he gave Bess a code word. Oh, for when he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember this. So that if she ever tried to reach out with the seance, that if they said, oh, we got Houdini, she would be like, well, what's the code word? And if they didn't give that word to her, then she knew yeah, that she they, knew were they were lying. Yeah. And I think that the code word was the title of a song or something. It was either her favorite song or his favorite song. It was the title of that song. That was the code word. See, I never knew what the code word was. Yeah, it's I never... something like Rosalie or Rosabelle or something mm-hmm. like that. I, I can't remember now, but you say that everybody knows this stuff, but oddly it's been almost a hundred years since Harry Houdini's death. And I think a lot of the younger generations don't know all these details. You know, I grew up in the 70s. I was a kid. I was a little kid in the seventies and I came of age in the eighties and the sort of presence of Harry Houdini in popular culture was still a thing all the way into the Mm eighties. But there were documentaries on Harry Houdini. It was one of those things where he was still very much lauded as this superhuman. They did the movie with Tony Curtis. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was that called? It also had, what was her name? Very famous uh, female actress of the time who played Bess. And this all escapes me now. Yeah. But th- something like The Greatest of All Time or something like that, something it was like called. That, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he was, and rightly so, an American icon of pop culture for decades and decades, even after his death. But I, Mm -hmm. but I think the younger generation, the Gen Z's in particular, they may not know this story at all. No. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think of that just because kind of like you growing up, I was just aware of of all of this. And I guess just from the TV, from movies and from, uh, from different shows, documentaries, and then having an interest in magic whenever I was younger, Uh I know, you know, Penn and Teller, David Blaine, Chris Angel, James Randi, they're all, I mean, any magician really, I, I would say, has had some kind of influence from Houdini. Yeah. David Copperfield actually owns two-thirds of the surviving Houdini artifacts, and he has them in a museum in Vegas. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, I remember watching a documentary long, long ago about a guy who had a bunch of Houdini's personal effects and Mm -hmm. props and among those was a giant trunk filled with the majority of his handcuffs there's a museum I don't remember where it was but they have uh, on the on the documentary that I saw it was it's just a big table and lining the table were all these just handcuffs all over the place so that may have been may have been one thing we should probably also mention is that he had a short film career too yes he did but 
he figured out that there was way more money in doing other things, and he made a few films, and he was like, nah, we're not yeah. doing this. Part of what I, I read about that was that he wanted to go into film to film some of the more dangerous stuff mm -hmm. so he didn't have to keep doing them live. Yeah, people just, would pay yeah. to see the replay, exactly. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was pretty interesting that David Copperfield actually has in his collection is supposedly the only voice recording of Houdini, which was made by Edison. Yeah, I, okay, I think I remember something about this. I didn't know that Copperfield had the originals, but... If I remember this correctly, somewhere around 1915, somewhere around in there, up in New York, he recorded a bunch of stuff onto Edison sound cylinders. Mm -hmm. And I think it was introductions to his acts or he was practic yeah. practicing his speeches or something like that. Okay, so I, apparently David Copperfield has those original uh, cylinder. They played the recording of one of them, so okay, okay. I know it's at least the one. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever heard those, but I I had heard that he'd done that. He has kind of a. I'll have to see if I can find it. I'll send you the video for it, or yeah. I'll see if I can play it. It's more a softer voice than what I really imagined. Okay, Houdini having so <laughs> that was a little bit interesting. Going back to his mother, Kenneth Silverman, who's a Houdini biographer, said that. He, with his competing to outdo everyone, it was always to impress his mother. Whenever he would write in his diaries and everything, he'd be like, my mother saw or she was there seeing the escape and everything. Okay. So, well, I don't doubt that. I, I've never heard that, but I don't doubt it because he took care of her his whole life yeah. and he held her in extremely high regard. And most people will tell you, biographers, historians, that he was never really the same after she died. Oh, no. Just from what it looks like and going back just from what I've seen in, in movies and or from reading and, and everything, it was it completely changed him as a person. Yeah. So it, it's just and I've never had to go through that myself, so I don't know what they, it's they like. say that the more mean spirited side of him came out after he couldn't get over his mother's death. Like mm -hmm. when he went after the spiritualist yep. and started suing everybody, he kind of got a mean streak in the in the wake of all that is kind of my understanding of yeah. it. Whenever he started getting older, and even with the physical fitness that he maintained throughout his life, mm -hmm. one of the things he realized was that doing the escapes and doing all of the, the tricks and the illusions that he was doing were was taking a toll on his body. And this is uh, allegedly one of the documentaries I watched said that he was looking for a way to reverse the aging process. Really? Yeah, and I don't know if you know about this at all. No, I've, I've never heard any of this. So he was looking for a way to reverse the aging process, and they found a guy, and, and again, this is all, I, I don't know if this is true or not. This is just what they found. They have letters talking about the doctor and everything, so there's documentation for this, but... Okay. One of the doctors, they considered grafting monkey testicles onto his own <laughs> for testosterone boost i guess I, I guess uh and that was supposed to man that seems like a bad idea yeah this that was supposed to reverse the aging process and give him that boost of energy and i guess that extra t testosterone yeah well with we know that testosterone, that figuring out ways to boost your testosterone goes a long way. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm 51 and I'm in good shape and 
I, I mean, I get, I have to, now that I'm in my fifties, I have to go get all the checks and checkups mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And my testosterone for a 50 year old is, is pretty good. It's above the average, but I know I can tell that I don't have the same amount of testosterone as I did when I was 18 or 20 you mm-hmm. do, and you feel different. And I think probably what he may have been looking for is a way to get that verve back where you just get up out of bed every day and go, wow, let yeah. me go conquer the world today. When you get in your fifties, you're like, meh, you're not as yeah. concerned with conquering the world as you were 30 years ago, you know, and maybe that's what he was looking for. But yeah, t- I, th- I think that's probably it. Really, but <laughs> I thought that's, that's, a, I mean, a really interesting thing. It's a weird fact if it's true. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Well, and it seems to me just thinking about the, just I have this picture in my mind of him trying to do this in the absolute age of medical quackery. Yeah. Like medical quackery was <laughs> never worse than it was around the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And it that actually went on into the 50s medical quackery until we finally started to crack down on most of it. I mean, up into the 1950s, you would go to a shoe shop and they would x-ray your feet to see what size shoes you needed. They would just irradiate Jeez. your feet. Yeah. So... I, I don't know. It seemed like a very dangerous time to be looking for the fountain of youth, but he was one of those guys. He, he never, you know, he never walked away from a challenge. He did not. No. <laughs> Let's talk about his death a bit. Okay. Now I've heard two kind of stories from this. The one I think that has been the most prominent as far as what I've heard has been that he was on a tour and he was backstage. Two fans came back and asked him if it was true that he could take a punch to the stomach. He said it was. They punched him and then ruptured his appendix. That is my basic understanding as well. What I understand was he he actually had the dude punch him twice. Yes. Yeah. If I remember this correctly, they were like, can you take a punch to the stomach? And he said, yeah. And so they punched him. He was like, no, wait, you got to wait until I'm ready. And so mm. he said, okay, now do it again. And he fle- he flexed his abdominal muscles the correct way and deflected the, the correct way yeah. and had him had him hit twice, had them or had the guy hit him twice. And there was a condition, per- I don't know, I, something uh, that starts with a peritonitis. P. Okay. Caused by his rupture of his appendix. Mm-hmm. And he ignored it. If he had gone immediately to the hospital, even in the day, they may have had a better chance of saving him. But he ignored it for days. Mm-hmm. And finally, it hurt so bad. And he got so sick from it that he, he was bedridden. And then he died shortly thereafter. Yeah. It was a really kind of a dumb way to die. But if you, this is the way I look at the death of Harry Houdini. The flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And he did a lot of really dangerous stuff. He should have been killed in airplanes many, many times over. And so you live that life. It's sort of a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of a end, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. He was always pushing the limit. He was always accepting challenges. He was always challenging others. He was always challenging himself. He was not afraid of anything by all accounts. And so even though that's a sad kind of a silly way to die, in a way it's apropos, I think. You know, mm-hmm. to me, I've always found that it was just apropos. Something like that was going to get him. There are more modern daredevils today who you can look at them and go, when he goes out, it's going to be because of some minor little mistake 
And how many daredevils can we say that about a bunch? I'm thinking of off the top of my head. I'm thinking of Jeb Corliss. See, I don't. I'm not who, familiar with Jeb Corliss was an, a really good daredevil, and he did a lot of crazy stuff. And he was one of the guys who pioneered the use of wingsuits. Okay. And once he had mastered the wingsuit, he got to this uh, point in his life where he was going down the side of a mountain in a wingsuit, and he was flying a few feet above the ground. And everybody told him that's going to get you, man. And he was like, nope, it's not going to get me. And it got him. Oh, and it ended his career. He survived, but yeah. I don't think he was ever the same after that. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that ended his career, even though he survived. Physically, I don't know what kind of shape he's in as a result of that. But that is the daredevil mindset. Daredevils, guys like Harry Houdini, guys like Jeb Corliss, guys, not necessarily the magicians, not the David Copperfields and Harry Blackstone Juniors yeah. and those. But the daredevil mindset those guys have to have a tremendous amount of endorphin and adrenaline in their system to feel normal. And that's really what they're going for. I believe in a lot of cases, they're just going for something that's going to get them so full of the good chemicals that your brain produces that they can feel normal and feel good. And I'm, I think a lot of those guys, when they're not full of endorphins and adrenaline, they feel terrible. They're depressed. They rage. Mm -hmm. They, you know, break, they punch walls and stuff like that. And it's just one of those personality types that you're wired a certain way. And I think daredevils, a certain amount of them anyway, are wired like that. Yeah. That's a, re that's really interesting. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. So, you know, the, the adrenaline yeah. of the adrenaline of trying to get out of a straight jacket, hanging upside down or shackles or something like that is, has to be similar in some way yeah. to what the extreme daredevils of today are doing. There's one way we can find out. Tim, here's a straight jacket. Let's <laughs> well, uh, see. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and pass on that. But yeah, I went caving a couple of winters ago uh -huh. in, in a wild cave with a, a longtime buddy of mine and figured out in that moment in my late 40s that I was claustrophobic. I always yeah. knew I was a little bit claustrophobic, but I'd gone into a million caves. But this one particular cave got me bad. The, the entrance to the cave was so narrow and the orifice going down into where it finally opened up was so long that I was like, oh, man, I, I don't think I can do this. And we, we went down to, to do some stuff the night before and came back up. And I didn't sleep a wink mm -hmm. the whole night. And so when we woke up at daybreak the next morning to go down into the cave, I was like, man, I can't do this. I'm, I'm claustrophobic. And I didn't sleep a wink last night. So now I'm way too tired to do this you know, it would be, it would be dangerous. So yeah, I, I totally, I can totally relate to all that. I know I've told this story before. I'm not sure if it's been on this podcast, but I know I've told you before when I did uh, scuba diving and the first scuba diving lesson that I had, we went in and it's just like a, a six foot pool. Mm -hmm. And I went down to the bottom and I started having a panic attack underwater. Yeah. And it was just breathing real fast and everything. The instructor came over and we're like, are, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. And they said, no, you're not okay. You need to go up to the surface. Right. And whenever you were talking about that uh, adrenaline chase, I guess, I, that made me think of that and for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just finding those fears that, you know, at some point you, you face them and you have to try to overcome them, I think, for or most people – let me think how to say this. You, you see these these things in with like Houdini and like with the Daredevils, like you're saying, they they face them and and push past them. Mm -hmm. 
And while the average person will look at him and say, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not yeah. doing it. The average person is not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, and I am a pretty, I'm, I don't consider myself a daredevil by any means, but you know me, I've always been a risk taker. Yeah. You know, I've drag raced and road raced motorcycles. I still ride motorcycles today. It's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, more and more, the older I get, the more and more my life centers more around motorcycles than anything. And I have always been that guy who, you can ask my wife, we went to Badlands National Monument the summer before last, and I scared the crap out of her because I would walk out onto these ledges in Badlands National Monument. And I, and I didn't really realize it. I'm, I feel bad about it now. I was scaring the crap out of her. I'm out on this ledge looking down two or 300 feet, and I'm getting a high off of it, it making me feel good. Yeah. And I'm having the time of my life and it's this beautiful sunny day and I'm surrounded by God's majesty. And my wife is back up the hill, absolutely having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, I get that. But my fears in life have been more practical. The stuff that I haven't been able to push past are things that by comparison, most people would consider insignificant. I've been always been afraid to be a leader my whole life. I could have gone a lot far, farther in everything I did my whole life if I hadn't been so afraid to lead people. I, I never wanted to follow anybody, but yeah. I never wanted to lead anybody. I've always been, I guess, kind of a sigma male in that in that mm-hmm. sense. I'm not a beta male, but I'm not an alpha male. I'm sort of this what they you know will sometimes refer to as a sigma male. Don't mess with me, and I won't mess with you. But I don't want to. I don't want fifty or a hundred people, you know, looking to me asking me what they should do. Yeah, I've always been able to figure out what I should do, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, Harry Houdini was kind of like that, too. I mean, he was definitely an alpha male in a lot of ways, but he was sort of set in his own stream of life that probably only he and a few other people understood. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but personalities like that have always been fascinating to me. I think that's why after all these years, I still consider Harry Houdini to be a very extremely fascinating human being. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The other story about his death that I've heard, it's basically the same thing, except that he was doing a lecture, and he was in the back. Uh, One of the students there was drawing him, and another student came in. Okay, I've heard. that's. I think this is the version I heard, Mm -hmm. the the lead-up to the punches. Yeah. I think that's the one I've heard, too, now that you mention that. See, and they both tell the exact same story. It's the two people going in there, one of them punching him, doing the two punches and saying, hey, hold on a second, let me, you know, get ready. And then the second hit, that ultimately caused everything to happen. Right, right. It's Uh, just the setting. The setting is Mm -hmm. different. And, you know, when a story gets to be 100 years old, that will happen. Yeah. You know, there is no one alive today that actually was there oh, no. <laughs> or was around there or heard these stories from the original people who were there that night. Mm-hmm. They're all gone now, you know? So <laughs> it's one of those things that history is left, unfortunately to uh, sometimes to the wrong people to write and recollect and record. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We could have a whole discussion on the nature <laughs> of history and what's accurate and what's not yeah. about it. So we may have to do that one day. Yeah. The last thing that I want to mention, because I know you have to take off here in a little bit, is that they hold a seance every year on Halloween, which is the day that he died. Uh-huh. And they have a set of handcuffs that they put on the table that Houdini said that if he could come back and unlock them, that he would. 
and then they have the the code word for them as well. So I did not know that. Yeah, I would. I'm one of these guys that is against that sort of thing. I I think I I would never go to a seance or I would never engage in any mm-hmm. anything that I remotely considered to be a type of sorcery or wizardry or witchcraft. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not wired like that. Part of it is just because of the way I was raised spiritually and the the religious path I've chosen. But I think that even if you're not religious, you have to, if you're open to the idea of a seance, you have to be open to the idea that it can go wrong. Oh yeah. That bad energy can come in that whether you look at what happens to us after in the afterlife, as we are souls that go to be with God or go to this place or, or whatever, or we're just, we return to forms of energy and wait to be transmogrified or transmorphed into another. Mm-hmm. You have to, even the law of attraction will tell you that as a mind thinks, so it becomes as a man thinks, so he becomes. And it seems to me like when you're opening yourself up to that, you can be opening yourself up to some really like negative energy or yeah, bad, yeah. bad things. So I've always stayed away from that kind of stuff, but I'm fascinated by it at the same time. And I think it's apropos again, that they do something like that for Harry Houdini considering the path of his life. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I've kind of followed the same same kind of path. I mean, just kind of staying away from it for the most part. Yeah. I've I've never gone and done the standing in the bathroom with the lights off saying Bloody Mary. Three no, times. So, me neither. Yeah. I would never do anything like that. Yeah. I did. <laughs> you know, everything that about it says that it won't work, but I don't want to test it. Right. So I don't need to see that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that that should do it, I think, for the, for this episode. Tim, thank you very much for for coming over here. I always enjoy it, man. Anytime you want to invite me over, if it's something I even know this littlest bit about, which today pretty much sums up, I'm always happy to hang out with you. It's always fun. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And you can find Tim Kreitz at Tim Kreitz Adventures on YouTube. I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh